Scripture reading for this morning is going to come from the book of 2 Timothy, first chapter, verses 6 and 7. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Psychologists tell us that we're born with only two instinctive fears. One is, before I I tell you what they are, I think it would be interesting, wouldn't it, if we had the time to go around the room and let everybody say what you think those two fears might be. But they tell us that the two instinctive, innate fears that every human is born with is a fear of loud noises and a fear of falling. Steve Allen, comedian from yesteryear, used to say that he had a third, and that was a fear of making a loud noise while falling. But that <laughs> Maybe you're not as bad as Steve was, but you sense that there is an element of fear in your life nonetheless. In fact, it could be that you're at one end of the spectrum, and that you realize that, in effect, your life has been wrecked by fear. That there are certain things that you are afraid of, they inhibit your decisions, they inhibit your lifestyle, they inhibit the pleasure and the potential that you could realize in life. I remember that there was not that long ago a documentary on the TV program 60 Minutes that was chronicling the fears that we Americans experience. And these were certainly at one end of the spectrum. People were interviewed in that program who were paralyzed by the thought of just going to the supermarket or to a department store in broad daylight. It showed those who were petrified by the thought of contact with other people. Wouldn't that be horrible? To to be afraid to be around other people. And then there were those who were afraid to leave the sanctuary, the confines of their own homes. These are people with agoraphobia. So their homes had become their own prisons. Fear strikes in a lot of ways that are not near as extreme as those I've just related. I know parents who live in constant fear that something will happen to their children. You may be one of those parents. And I think there's all for us a legitimate concern. But there are some people who are just paralyzed. Anytime their, their children leave the house, they're, they're afraid that they won't come back. Every time the phone rings, they expect bad news. Some are terrified that... A physical exam will reveal some kind of incurable disease, and so they're reluctant to even go to the doctor because they don't want to hear a a, a diagnosis of bad news. Fear can be one of the greatest enemies that we confront in our lives. It can vie against living a happy, successful life. So the question that I want to ask this morning at the very beginning of this discussion is, is there any way to avoid it? Better yet, is there any way to overcome the element of fear in our lives? And the short answer to that question is yes, there is. In fact, God's word addresses that on virtually every page. In this lesson, we want to talk about how to overcome fear in your life. But I need to begin with some bad news. Apparently, there is something in us. We are wired psychologically so that we, and I know this sounds counterproductive to everything that we're going to be talking about this morning, but there are people, uh, in fact, most of us to some degree, like to hear 
the bad news. Psychologists have explained that when we hear bad news, that makes us to feel, feel comparatively fortunate. So we're thinking things may not be all that great in my life, but at least I'm not like that person that I just saw on the news. So we constantly ask ourselves, why don't the, the, people, the news people report the news that we say that we want to hear. I, I, I don't know if you've had that experience, but I have it almost every evening. Why don't we hear some good news? Sometimes when we turn on our TVs or when we watch the news on the Internet. Well, it's been tried. Alex Dreyer tried broadcasting a program that was just good news. That lasted for 13 weeks, and he had to quit because nobody was listening. In Sacramento, California, there was a little tabloid called the Good News Paper, and it printed only good news, and it lasted a full 36 months before it went bankrupt. It seems people will not buy the good news that they say they want. Gossip and bad news sells papers. In fact, what's the saying in journalism? If it bleeds, it leads. So people are locked in to hearing and reading about bad news. So listen to practically any broadcast, you'll hear a barrage of almost exclusively bad news. And I'm sure that you've noticed that even the weatherman on TV has to rename every little shower a thunderstorm. And when he reports the temperature, he doesn't just tell us that it's 40 degrees anymore. He has to tell us that the wind chill factor is 20 degrees. Just hearing that makes you colder, doesn't it? Or in the summertime, he doesn't tell you that it's 95 degrees outside. He also has to tell you that the heat index is 115. Have you noticed it's never just a little dry spell anymore? It's an ecological disaster from which humankind may never recover. So it takes a stout heart in our day and time just to watch the weather channel. We're warned, don't breathe. The air is toxic. Don't eat. The food is contaminated. Don't drink water with chemicals in it. And whatever you do, don't drink water without chemicals in it. <laughs> Crime gets top billing. It's even been reduced to statistical probabilities. 20 persons out of 100 or something like that, we're told, will be mugged or raped or robbed in a given year. And the implicit message is clear that you might be one of those 20 so how do you like getting out of the bed every morning knowing what the statistical probabilities are that you're going to be a victim of the crime before the day is over? No wonder there's a lot of people who opt to not even get out of bed. And less wonder that one in 20 Americans is in a mental hospital. And as some cynic has suggested, perhaps one in 10 ought to be. Never in the history of mankind have people who really, really enjoy worrying had such a huge, broad list of things from which to choose. But the fear that we're talking about this morning can eat away at our lives. It can be very destructive. It can tie you in knots. It can paralyze your thinking and then, therefore, your action. It can literally torment you. John acknowledges that reality in 1 John 4, verse 18. I'm summarizing, but John says in that verse that Fear isn't even a suitable motivation as a primary motivation for serving God. And he explains at the end of that verse, because fear has torment. God doesn't want us to, to live in torment. That's not going to be a motivating factor, not as a primary factor, to motivate us even to serve God because we just can't run scared all our lives. So at some point, love needs to replace fear as the primary motivator 
for us living the Christian life and wanting to do the Lord's will. Fear that causes us to live in in constant anxiety can destroy our happiness. It can keep us from living a positive, productive life. And over and over again, God speaks to us through his word, and he says things like, fear not. I don't know if you've ever gone through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to see how many times those two words appear. Fear not. He was constantly telling his disciples, stop being afraid. Whether it was the time when he walked on water or some other incident in the ministry of our Lord, he was always having to remind them that they ought not to have so much fear in their lives. So he told them that. And, and, and then Paul would say things like, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and lives through Christ Jesus. That's Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, of course. Now, don't miss this. Fear is not caused by circumstances or conditions. I've said that enough from this pulpit. I know that you're getting the message. But it isn't caused by our circumstances or the conditions we're in. It is caused by our response to the conditions or circumstances. That is, anything that happens to us or around us is not going to force us to think a certain way. We'll talk more about that tonight, Lord willing. So it comes from the response, our reaction to circumstances. So the key to overcoming fear in our lives, and I wanted to go ahead and tell you this up front, this is the premise statement of this lesson. The key to overcoming fear in our lives is to replace it with faith. And that may seem a little oversimplistic, but it isn't. It's actually quite profound. Because saying that and recognizing that and then living like that is two completely different things. It's one thing to recognize, I need to have more faith. I need to trust God. I need to, I need to be focused on his provisions and his, his promises and not just on my problems. I understand all of that, but doing that when the rubber hits the road in my life in a practical way is another matter entirely. So again, remember, overcome, the key to overcoming fear in our lives is to have more faith. And if we have faith that God is in control, then we have eliminated the foundation of fear. So if, if you really want to overcome fear, you have to develop a, a strong faith in God. And that means not just knowing certain facts about God, although that's a part of it. But it also involves the other element of faith, which is coming to trust and rely upon God. It's one thing to know about God and to know who he is. It's another thing to know him in the sense of knowing that he is the everlasting arm upon which we can lean in times of trouble. And that we can trust God's promises and his provisions and his providence in our lives. David said this, and I love this passage because it speaks so very clearly to what we're talking about this morning. This, by the way, is Psalm 34, verse 4. He says, I I sought the Lord and he answered me, watch this, and delivered me from all my fears. So David says the answer to fear in his life was learning to lean upon the Lord, learning to trust God. Learning to have that kind of foundational faith that every one of us recognizes that we need to have. When you put God first in your life, then, then you, can, you can finally let your full weight down. And you don't have to live life in fear or worry ever again. I repeat, the only way to eliminate fear successfully and long term is to replace it with faith. Let me pinpoint several passages from the Psalms. I'm going to stick just, and man, they're all through the Bible. 
But I want to prove to you in, in just four or five verses that the Psalms is replete with this kind of inspired counsel. If fear is a real problem for you, for us, then we can copy these passages down. We can keep them in our purse or our wallet, or better yet, we can commit them to heart. And then when fear begins to appear in in some kind of circumstance or condition in our lives, and we'll have these verses handy that we'll be able to read through them, and they will give us the assurance that we need. Here they are. Psalm 23, verse 4, the famous 23rd Psalm, even though I walk through the valley, and you know the rest of it, don't you? The shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. God is with me, and so I'm not going to fear any evil or, or the repercussions of what evil might do to me or in me. Psalm 27.1 is another one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's like the old saying, me and God make a majority. In fact, even if it weren't me in, the, in this uh, equation, God himself would make the majority. And so if I've learned to rely upon the sovereign God who created this universe, who continues to sustain it by his power, who loves his people, who is concerned about the minutia, every detail of your life. He's concerned about the problems you're dealing with. He's concerned with the issues that you're having to confront every day. He's concerned about the child that you seemed to not be able to bring under control. He's concerned about your elderly parents and your concern for them and taking care of them in their senior years. Everything that is going on in your life at this moment, and it really is true, there is a heartache on every pew. Amen? Everybody is fighting a battle of one kind or the other, and our God is concerned with every one of those skirmishes. And he is not only concerned, but he is, he is dedicated to making sure that you and I are going to get through those. He's going to equip us with what is necessary, but a part of it is just these foundational facts, these reaffirmations of Scripture that God really is on our side. He really is seeking our best interest. He really does want the best for us. Here's two more from the psalm. Psalm 56, 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, that's in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust without fear. What shall flesh do to me? And then Psalm 112, 6 and 7, the righteous will never be moved. He is not afraid of evil tidings. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Again, faith in God is the answer to our fears. Let's get more specific for just the next few minutes. Psychologists tell us that there are four basic fears that that are learned fears that plague us. And God's word addresses every one of them. Let's run through them quickly. First of all, they say there is a fear of want. That's a fear that haunts many people, especially in a materialistic society where we place so much value and so much emphasis upon what we we own. What if I lose my job? What if I get sick and I can't work? What if some member of my family gets sick and the medical bills outstrip my income? Those are all legitimate concerns, and they are certainly common fears. And I imagine that we're all jostled by them occasionally. Again, the only antidote to that kind of fear is a strong faith in the promises of God. Jesus, I think, really hits the issue head on in his famous sermon. You know the one I'm talking about, the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to Matthew 6. Let's read some for just a moment. 
Matthew chapter 6, I know that you know that I know that you know these verses are in the Bible. But we just need to have these things cemented in our hearts, I think, from time to time. So let's spend just a, a couple of minutes reading. And I'm going I'm to start with verse 25 and read down through the end of the chapter. Jesus says, and think about the fact that of all the things that he could have chosen to speak about, to talk about with his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he has chosen this thought. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food in the body than, than more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, isn't this a great question, are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to a stature? So why, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God, here's the conclusion. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, there's the identification of the problem. If you're worrying about these things, O you of little faith, you need to have a stronger faith. You need to build your faith in God. Therefore do not worry, verse 31, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Here's where your head ought to be, but seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. I'm tempted to stop there, but look at one more verse. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient unto the day is its own trouble. That's where Jesus ends this this discussion by saying you need to live your life in day-tight compartments. You do not spend and waste a day worrying about what might happen or what you might not have that you would need tomorrow. You know, in our materialistic age, we're programmed to fear having to do without something. And maybe we're, I, I don't know for sure, but we may be the first generation that is so dominated by that fear, a fear of having to do without something. I mean, we have gorged ourselves with so many possessions that we have assigned an importance to those possessions that is all out of proportion to their true value. A home that doesn't have Wi-Fi or a microwave oven anymore is considered to be a, a, a poverty-stricken home, we've decided. To some, depending on the neighborhood, if you don't have an in-ground pool or maybe a tennis court, then, then, then you're deprived ad infinitum ad nauseum. According to the research and the calculations of a group of statisticians, I find this fascinating, by the way, the average American 100 years ago, put yourself in a time capsule, go back 100 years, 100 years ago had 72 wants. That just means if he listed everything that he could think of, that he could possibly every, ever want, there was a list of 72 things on his list. 16 of those 72 things were considered to be absolute necessities. Today... A hundred years later, the average American has 484 wants, and 94 of them are considered to be necessities. Think about that comparison. I have more items on my list of necessities than my great-grandfather had on his entire want list. Here's the conclusion, good people. Perhaps the fear of want grows not out of, of lacking things, 
It grows out of wanting too much. Is that not a distinct possibility? Only strong faith and only correct priorities carrying us back to Matthew 6.33 can deliver us from that kind of fear. David said, I, I've been young and now I'm old. I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Psalm 37 verse 25. God takes care of his children. And that's a comforting thought which should eliminate this kind of fear. It also involves maturing, I think, in our attitudes regarding these material things. Ralph Waldo Emerson said the amount of a man's wealth consists in the number of things that he can do without. There's a great deal of wisdom in that. The best way to live happily ever after is not to be after too much. Here's what scripture says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6 verse 6, two verses later, that same Paul said, And having food and clothing, let us with those things... Therewith be content, and be content with such things as you have. Hebrews 13, 5, all through the Bible, it keeps telling us the key to happiness and fulfilling your potential in life, and the, the, the key to conquering fear in your life is not having everything you want. It's learning to be content with what you have already. It's learning to praise God every day for the way that he's blessed us so richly. Secondly, there's the fear of suffering. Just the thought of suffering is frightening to a lot of people. And we desperately want to avoid sickness and sorrow and loneliness and grief and, and any other point of suffering. And again, faith in God is the only answer to dealing with that kind of fear. Not only will God deliver you, not that I should say, not that God will deliver you from, from those kinds of fears because he will not deliver us from all suffering. We understand what scripture says on that subject. This is an inescapable part of life. The reality is that even when we serve God, even when we serve him faithfully, he is not going to immunize us from the suffering and the difficulties of life. Someone says, but there are three schools in which we must all enroll if we live long on earth, and they are the schools of work and suffering and temptation. I think that's also quite valid. But God will limit our suffering to what we're able to handle, and he can use that for our good. If only we will stay within his will. There was one man who was seriously injured in an automobile accident a few years ago. I didn't know him personally, but I read about him. And he spent quite a number of months, and I'm talking about pain-filled months of recovery and therapy. But in those months, his, he said that his faith grew to a stronger level than it had ever been in his life. And today he looks back at that experience as the most valuable time of his life. Not that he would want to go back and to re-experience that, but he says, since I did, since I went through that experience, that was the most valuable time of my life in terms of my spiritual growth and maturation. I think he had David's view of life when David said in Psalm 119 verse 71, it's good for me that I've been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Sometime the only time we look up is when we're flat on our backs. So even suffering can give us some lessons if we're willing to learn from that school. Suffering may provide the opportunity for us to experience the power of Christ in a way that otherwise we would never have experienced it. And that was certainly the case with the Apostle Paul. You remember he had that affliction that he talked about a number of times, especially 2 Corinthians 10, where he had an affliction that, that caused a great deal of suffering and anguish. And you also remember that he said he prayed three times that the Lord would remove that thorn in the flesh, but God didn't do it. Instead, what he told Paul was, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul, because of his great faith, was able to say, I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. So you don't need to fear suffering if you're living for God. Because even when suffering comes, you have the assurance of his presence and his power. The third kind is the fear of failure. You know, it's a rare person who is never touched with this kind of fear. It starts early. It follows us from the cradle to the grave. We are afraid that we will fail, that we will do something wrong. We're afraid of failure in school, failure on the job, in our social contacts, or in some other some kind of competition. I, you know, I'm really tempted to stop and, and preach a, a sermon on its own about social contact. We are living in a world dominated by fear that someone won't like us. That they will unfriend us or we don't get enough likes on our Instagram account. or what, what, Social media, folks, has blown us out of the water in terms of the potential for our happiness if we place too much emphasis upon the evaluation and the estimation of other people. God says you can't live that way. You can't ever expect to be happy if you're so plugged in, literally, and so attuned to and so overwhelmed with what other people think about you on social media. And so whether you literally pull the plug on that or whether you reframe your thinking, and again, shameless plug for tonight's lesson, we'll be talking about that more tonight. We've got to realize that, that faith in God will help us to appreciate the fact that what God thinks about us is really the only important matter in life. And that if we're making sure that we're doing God's will, what other people, right-thinking people at least, think about us will take care of itself. So that's part of the problem. We want to win. We want to achieve. And and we fear failure when we rely more on ourselves than we do on on the Lord and his promises. And when we get swallowed up in this world's standards of success. God measures success, folks, by our faithfulness and by our obedience and by our character growth. That's the yardstick he uses. In Hebrews 11, you know there's there's a long list of faith's heroes They were not all winners in terms of worldly achievement, but they were winners in God's sight because they made made it the business of their lives to do God's will no matter what the circumstances were. So I'm telling you this morning that if pleasing God is your aim, listen to me now, if pleasing God is your aim, you are guaranteed to succeed. You have God's guarantee that you will be successful in life. And that's one of the beauties of Christianity. Everyone who runs that race and perseveres is going to win. And finally and quickly, a fear, a fear of death. That's in the minds of many, maybe most, is the ultimate fear. What happens when we die? You know, we see death as our greatest enemy in this world, and maybe even more specifically in our culture right here in the United States. And we see the scientists who are trying to find the answer to death as our greatest friends. But I think the good news of the gospel is that Christ, Christ is the one who has won the victory over death. And that everyone who follows him and serves him faithfully will someday be raised from the dead never to die again. That's where our hope ought to be. Not in somebody will find some magic pill that will allow us to physically live forever. Who would want to do that anyway? 
but that, that God has promised us that we can live eternally if we follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and when he overcame death by his own resurrection from the dead, he has assured that same victory to every one of us. He said, this is John fourteen nineteen. if you want to check it out. He said, because I live, you will also live. And if you're a faithful child of God, you never really die. You just change your place of residence. You're going to live forever. Jesus also said in John eleven twenty five and 26, He who believes in me shall never die. The question I have for you this morning is, now do we believe that or don't we? Is that something that we can take to our spiritual bank and, and, and deposit it? Or, or do we really believe that someday we're going to live with God in eternity that will never end? Jesus came into this world to deliver us from the fear of death. I want to read one more passage and then we're going to, we're going to pull this together and we're going to quit. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. The writer of Hebrews tells us that, that he took a flesh and blood body, Jesus did when he came to this earth, so that, here's his explanation, this is by inspiration, this is the mind of God, not just the mind of whoever wrote the passage. That through death... He, that is God, might deliver him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, here it is, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong bondage. He's talking about our modern world. He's talking about people who are imprisoned by their fear of death. Jesus Christ came to emancipate us, liberate us, open that jail door, and allow every one of us to go free. We do not have to spend our lives fearing death even, the ultimate fear in the minds of most people. A fellow gospel preacher recently sat next to a lady on an airliner as it was taking off. She looked a little bit tense, so he asked the compassionate question if she were afraid. And her response kind of took him aback, but he really appreciated what, he said, what she said and later wrote a bulletin article about it. Her response to his question was, ma'am, are you afraid? She said, no, I'm a Christian. There's nothing really to fear. Live or die, the Christian wins either way. That about sums it up, doesn't it? What will it be for you? Fear or faith? You'll never overcome fear until you commit yourself to the one who holds time and eternity in his hands. As the old saying goes, I do not know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. But when you put your faith in him, you eliminate the pressures of having to carry the world on your shoulders. So love God, have faith in him, obey God, and you can live without fear. This morning, it may be that you have never been liberated by the blood of Jesus Christ from your sin or from your fear. You have that opportunity as we sing this song of encouragement in just a moment. Turn your back on, on the world in sincere repentance. Confess your faith that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. And be baptized to have all of your past transgressions, every one of your sins, washed away by the blood of Jesus. And you'll never have to be afraid again while we stand, while we sing.